Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, Crosspoint. It is wonderful to connect with you again digitally, Lord willing, for the last time. As Robert said earlier today, we in the service, we are planning to, after 12 long weeks of not being able to gather together physically, to gather next Sunday, June 7th, at least for most of us. I know some of us may not be ready to gather yet, some for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe you have some other underlying health concerns are not going to gather. That is fine. We will continue to live stream the service really from here on out. But next Sunday, June 7th, we're planning to gather together. And this is our 12th, our 12th quarantine sermon where I'm preaching to an empty sanctuary. And uh, I've been thankful for this time, but I am looking forward to seeing you all, at least many of you, again, Lord willing, next Sunday. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. In just a moment, I'm going to read this text that I think is probably familiar to many of us at Cross Point. A beautiful text, a beautiful description of the church. And we're going to zero down in on it. We're going to look at that text and then we're going to make application from this text about who we are as a church. What a great privilege it is to be Christians together in community in the church and how God is calling us to live together as a local church. As you're finding 1 Timothy chapter 3, let me just mention two brief things. First, a word of instruction about next Sunday. Robert mentioned earlier in the service that we are going to have two services next Sunday, and the reason why is because we are trying to abide by and good, be good citizens and, and to heed the recommendations of our government to practice social distancing. So if we had the whole congregation here in one service, we'd all be jam-packed in here like we normally are on a Sunday morning. And we wouldn't be able to really practice social distancing and keep six feet from each other. So we're going to have two services at 10.30 and 5 p.m. Both of those services are going to be the same exact service. So you're you're not missing any content if you go to one or the other. And uh, we're sending out, as Robert mentioned, an instructional video. It's just kind of a heads up of a little bit of what Sunday morning is going to look like. We're going to have some rows blocked off so there's gaps between people. The ushers are going to be real intentional about helping people find seats, uh, and we're going to ask you to sort of be aware of entering and exiting the building. Look, friends, it's going to be a bit awkward at first, and so we're going to have to just be patient with one another. I imagine June 7th, this first Sunday, may be a little awkward and maybe even a little frustrating and and strange, but we're going to bear with one another, and, and it'll just be great to see many of you. Also, just be reminded that our children are going to be meeting with us in the sanctuary. It's impossible for children to socially distance from each other. So we're not going to have any children's ministry, not even even the infant nursery. And so we're going to have our kids in here, which is fine. And young parents, I know that may cause you some fear and some trepidation uh, and shortness of breath, but, but fear not. We'll be okay. It is okay if the children act up and wiggle and squirm and make noise. We're going to be intentional about making the services a little bit shorter than normal, and it'll be okay if the kids wiggle. So be looking for that email and that video that will be sent out early next week, tomorrow, with details about what June 7th is going to look like. One real critical aspect of that is that we're going to ask you to, for lack of a better 
terms sign up or register for either the 10.30 a.m. or the 5 p.m. service so that we can appropriately plan. And there's going to be a cap. We're really capping each service around 300 people. And so we're going to cap each service so that we can, again, uh, heed the advice of these social distancing guidelines. And so that'll be real important that you're diligent in that, that you're paying attention uh, and that you help us prepare for next Sunday. So that's the first word. The second, before we get into the text, is just a brief word of thanks for your faithfulness as a church during these 12 weeks, during this time when we've been separated from one another. We have, I have personally, the staff, the pastors, the elders, have received so many encouraging words uh, from you about just your, your gratefulness for the church and for the things that we've been trying to do to stay connected during this time. Thank you for that. That has been, it's been like wind in my pastoral sails to hear encouraging words from many of you. Another just wonderful praise to the Lord is that we had an elders meeting uh, earlier this week and we were looking at our financial position from year to date until now, from January. Actually in 2020, even though we haven't met for the past 12 weeks, our giving is actually up when you look at from year to date compared to last year, 2019. So praise the Lord. There's so many of you have been just so faithful in your giving. And this, dear ones, has enabled us as a church in such a healthy, debt-free financial position to be able to bless other sister churches. We were able to send some money to help support pastors in India who are struggling financially. Some pastor, uh, pastor Raphael in, in Uganda able to help King Jesus Church with some needs that they have, and we've been able to help a local church here in Columbus that is in a much different situation than we are because of the generosity of the saints of Crosspoint. And then I just want to say finally, before we get into the text, just a word of thanks to those that have been coming up here uh, 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 to an empty building and helping us do this live stream, our tech team, our, our Brandon Barnes and Sarah Ann Garcia in particular, and Paul Fincher and the people that have been helping on the worship team coming up and serving. It's just been a tremendous blessing to the church. So as you see those people, say thanks to them. They've labored faithfully to serve us as a church for the past 12 weeks. All right, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is a beautiful description. I remember when we preached through 1 Timothy and we settled on these two verses here, which is a wonderful kind of snapshot that the Apostle Paul gives of a description of the church. Just a little background of this letter of Timothy. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to this young pastor named Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And that became the church that received the letter from Paul called Ephesians. Now we read about the beginning of this church in Acts chapter 19. There's this really remarkable story about how Paul brings the gospel to the city of Ephesus. And it literally almost turns the city upside down. I, I guess better said figuratively turns the, the city upside down. The, the, the people that are worshiping false gods, even blacksmiths and building you know, shrines to these false gods... They start to get converted, and they're, they're burning down all of the, 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 the idols that they've made, selling things, and is upending the economy of Ephesus. It causes a riot, and yet there's this gospel-preaching church in Ephesus, and Paul then leaves Ephesus, and he leaves this young man, Timothy, to pastor this church. And First and Second Timothy, along with Titus, are often called the pastoral epistles, 
meaning there's instruction to young pastors about how the church should be ordered and what the church should look like and how the church should live together. They're like instruction manuals for the church. And that's much of what First Timothy is. It's an instruction manual on who the leadership of the church should be and what, what the content of the teaching should be and how the church should take care of one another and how they should strive together in sanctification. And in verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul takes a little bit of a break of instruction to give this picture and this purpose of why he's writing to Timothy this picture of the church. So let me read 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Look at the second half of verse 15 again. It says that the church, that he's, he's writing, he's saying this is how you ought to behave. This is how Christians should act together in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to look at this text briefly and then make application. Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative sufficient word. In it, you have made us very great and precious promises by which we can become partakers in the divine nature, Peter says. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness through your spirit that abides in us, through your son that has reconciled us to you, and through your word that instructs us, corrects us, rebukes us, chastens us and forms us into the image of your Son. Help us now, Lord, to think deeply about the great privilege we have to be a local church together. I pray that that our time in this text would make us more like Christ, and that you would be exalted, and that any friends that may be watching that don't know Jesus, that you might soften their hearts so that they would turn and trust in him. And I pray this all for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think this text, verse 15 in particular, is really quite straightforward. Paul is just making a statement here. He's really summarizing his purpose for this first letter to Timothy. And he's saying he's writing these things so that Christians would know how they are to behave, how they're to act. But what's notable is how he describes the church. He says it is the household of God, which a clear implication of that is that the church is a a family. We are people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different parts of the country, even some of us from different countries. And we're gathered here together in Columbus, Georgia, as part of this church, as part of a household that supersedes any biological household that we're part of. The household that we're part of that in this small way is represented as Cross Point Church, which is connected to believers everywhere across the world, across the centuries. It's part of this eternal household, this body of God's people, this bride of Christ, this family of God. That's what we're part of. And then he describes this household of God. He gives another description. He calls it the church of the living God. This is where God resides in his people. He doesn't dwell in temples built by hands. He dwells in and amongst his people whom he has created. 
This word church is such an important word all throughout the Bible. But in the New Testament in particular, it comes from this Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out, those people that are called out from among the world. They're separated. So even though after we are saved and God has redeemed us, he leaves us in this world, but spiritually he calls us out of this world even though we're still remaining in this world for the rest of our earthly life. And he calls us out to live together. And he calls us to live in a particular way for a particular purpose. Jesus Hints, in fact, alludes to this in Matthew chapter 5 in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says about his people, verse 14, Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the point here I'm making is that when we read and understand this word church as the people of God called out to live together, to be set up so that they have this purpose of putting on display to the world what it means to know and to serve and to follow God and be part of his family. That's the point of the church. And then this final description here at the end of verse 15, I love this. He calls, he describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. So think about just in your mind what pillars and buttresses are. They are merely supporting beams. In fact, in this building now, there are pillars, there are columns that are holding up this roof. They're really quite unspectacular, but they're very necessary. Nobody walks into Cross Point Church and looks at these beams and says, oh, wow, look, this is a wonderful building. We just kind of walk by it. We maybe sit next to it. We might even lean on it, but we barely notice it. And that's really the point of the church. The point of the church is not that we would look at the pillar and say, what a wonderful pillar, but we're supposed to look at the thing that the pillar is holding up. And the church is to be a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The good news of the gospel, the great hope of the world, that a holy God has reconciled the people to himself through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the kingship of his son Jesus, God the Son in the flesh. That's the purpose of God calling us out. That's the purpose of Crosspoint. That's why we've been tuning in. That's why we care to speak. To, to stick together, to live together as a local church, to encourage one another, to help one another follow God, because we are called to be part of this structure of God, this spiritual structure called the church, which is meant to hold something up, which is the glory of God and the truth of the gospel, so that the world around us would know and see not what great pillars we are, who cares about pillars, but that they would see the truth that rests on the pillar, which is the good news, in fact, the only news, by which any person can be reconciled to God, which is trusting not in our own righteousness, because we're dead in our sins by nature. Our righteousness, our good works are like filthy rags before God. But the only way that any man or woman or boy or girl from any tribe or tongue can ever be made right before a holy God and not separated from him for eternity in judgment because of their rebellion 
is through the truth of the gospel, that Jesus lived a life that we could not live, died a death that we should have died, and rose in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and now has the keys to life and gives life to those that the Father has given him. And he commands us to preach this good news which is the means by which he brings a great multitude of sinners like us alive so that they might be part of this family and lift up this truth so that more people would become part of this family so that all of God's children would come all the way home and his glory would be complete. That's what we're doing here. That's why Crosspoint Church exists. That's why we can't wait to gather together again and resume gathering together as the ecclesia, or at least one tiny little portion of the household of God that lives together and seeks to hold up this truth. So I think that's what that text is saying. Now, the second half of this message, just a brief application, three truths as a consideration of what it looks like to behave in this way. Not directly from this text, but more pulling from the whole New Testament, three applications about how we ought to behave in the household of God. Now, this isn't a a sermon like your grandmother or grandpa telling you how you ought to act. This is just an encouragement to a church that I think acts like this already. This is just an encouragement and a reminder to stir this up more and more in the life of Crosspoint as we prepare to see one another again. So how ought we to behave in the household of God? Three thoughts. First, we should remember to prioritize church life. We should prioritize church life. The Christian life is the gospel-centered life, but it's also the church-centered life. And that is clear throughout the New Testament. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. This is what the writer says in Hebrews 10. I think this is one of the most descriptive most beautiful, most clear passages in the New Testament of the Christian life. Listen to verse 19 of Hebrews 10. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, great priest over the house of God. Let me pause there. Those two verses, those three verses are the gospel. What the writer is saying is, we can draw near to God, which we couldn't previously do because we were unrighteous, dead sinners, but we can now. Why can we have confidence to draw near to God, which is the greatest need of every human? Not because of anything we've done, but because of the blood of Jesus that has absorbed the wrath of God on the cross, satisfied it, propitiated it, removed it, and opened up a new and living way. He's made us alive, and he's opened up a way for us now to be alive and to receive his righteousness and to be reconciled and come to God. In our natural state, we wouldn't want to be near God because his holiness would burn us up. But because Jesus' righteousness is given to us in the gospel by faith when he makes us alive, we now can be reconciled to God. And how does that happen? Through Jesus, who's not only our sacrifice, but he's also our priest interceding for us before the Father. And so what's the conclusion of the writer in Hebrews? He says in verse 22, picking back up in Hebrews 10, 
Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's been kind of a theme verse for us during this pandemic in this anchored series, this holding fast to the anchor of the gospel. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And the reason I think verse 23 is in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the reason we're encouraged and exhorted to hold fast is because oftentimes in the Christian life, we are tempted not to hold fast. And one of the ways that God holds fast to us is by exhorting us to hold fast to Him. And he says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, but this is not, and we'll see this in verses 24 and 25, this is not an individual pursuit now to this church life. Verse 24, and let us consider, let us reckon, the old versions say, let us think about, let us spend time contemplating how to stir up one another to love and good works. You realize that's the duty of every Christian according to Hebrews 10, 24, to spend time thinking about how you can encourage, cultivate, stir up other brothers and sisters to love and good works. That means that your sanctification is part of my spiritual duty. And my sanctification is part of your spiritual duty. And everybody that you're a member of a local church with, their growing in Christ is actually part of your assignment as a Christian. And verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the final consequence there in this passage of what it means to know the Lord, to be reconciled to Him, to be in community There's this warning, this exhortation. Don't neglect to meet together. Prioritize, prioritize gathering with the people of God. The gospel creates a new creature in Christ Jesus. But the gospel then takes that new creature, that new creation, and puts it in a new family called the church. This is the logic of Hebrews 10 and the logic of much of the New Testament. But there's this exhortation in verse 25 about not neglecting to meet together. As I think about these last 12 weeks when we have not been able, we've not been neglecting, we've just not been able because we've wanted to be good citizens in a Romans 13 sense, obeying the imperfect instructions of our imperfect government that God has perfectly set over us according to His wise purposes. We have not been neglecting to meet together but we have intentionally not met together to be good citizens. So here's a couple thoughts I have. that there, Because of this time of not meeting together, there are, I think, two possible impacts that this quarantine can have on our relationship or our posture towards gathering together with the local church. The first possible impact, and I pray this is not the case for you, is that maybe it, it has made you lackadaisical or nonchalant about prioritizing gathering together with your church. I pray that would not be the case. But one of the pastoral concerns I have is that we just get in habits, and some people might have gotten a bad habit 
different if that is you. Oh, pray to God that he would, that he would, that he would remove that from you and not let you fall into that bad habit. The other possible reaction or impact, and I pray this is what has been the case for the vast majority, if not all of us, is that it has made us miss and long for and re-emphasize in our hearts how important it is that we gather and how much we need one another. That's a good impact. That can be one good fruit. That can be one actual grace that God has given his people all throughout the world during this time that it would produce in us more of a longing, more of an appreciation for one another. Let me just ask before we move on, which do you think describes you most? During these past, just be honest with yourself, during these past 12 weeks that you've not been able to gather physically, which way do you think you have leaned? Has it maybe produced a bad habit in you, a lack of daisicalness, a lack of prioritization, or has it produced in you a longing? If you find yourself honest with yourself that it hasn't really produced in you a longing to gather with the people of God, Oh, dear ones, repent and pray and ask God to stir your heart to obey this verse. And one little word before we move on. As I've just noticed that some Christians, and I, you know, I don't want to be too pessimistic here, but I've noticed some people that have been very sensitive about the government and how there has been this kind of libertarian streak in a lot of Christians where we've really complained about, it hasn't happened so much in our area in Georgia, but in other parts I've seen where people have been very sensitive about some things that local and state governments have said about churches not being able to meet together. And there's maybe some valid concerns in cer- certain pockets and areas of our, of our country. But friends, there, the, the church in general at large in America re- really undercuts itself. When, when things are well, when there is no quarantine, when many people are very haphazard about gathering with the church, but then all of a sudden they get their back up when the government says they can't gather. But when they can gather, it's, it's not a priority. It's a second or third or fourth level thing in their life. And now all of a sudden that the government says that they can't or shouldn't, now they're upset. Oh, friends, that, that, that's a poor witness to the world. And I pray that it's none of us. I pray that we would need government intervention or some libertarian streak in us rouse some desire to gather we should want to gather because it's what the bible says christians do friends the bottom line is we need one another the christian life is a church life so that's a that's how we should behave we should prioritize that let let the holy spirit just deal with you on that if if that's not the case in your life the second way we should behave just thinking about some, some implications all throughout the New Testament is that we should pursue brotherly love. We should pursue brotherly love. That's a clear way that we should behave in the local church, the, the, the household of God. I'm thinking about in particular in Romans, this, this beautiful explanation of the Christian life in Romans chapter 12. But before I read verses 9 through 16 of, of Romans chapter 12, there's, there's this context that we don't want to miss before we read verses 9 through 16, which I think is one of the clearest pictures of how we should love one another in the local church. Before I read that, let's not miss the greater context of the letter of Romans. Many of us, I know we spent a couple years working through Romans here at Crosspoint a year or so ago, we think of Romans as this wonderful doctrinal mountain 
an explanation of the gospel, this kind of systematic laying out of the truth of the gospel. And clearly it is that. But one of the purposes behind, and the context behind the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church was the tension between groups in the church in Rome. A few years before Paul had written the letter to the Roman church, there was a great eviction of Jewish citizens from the city of Rome. And so all of the Jewish Christians had to leave Rome. And by the time Paul had written the letter to Roman, the Roman church that we know now of Romans, the Jewish people and Jewish Christians were able to come back to Rome. But the Jewish Christians were reintegrating into a Christian church in Rome that for at least a few years had been exclusively Gentile. And one of the burdens that Paul has in so clearly explaining the gospel in Romans is how the gospel reconciles us not only to God, but to one another, and specifically how the gospel reconciles people that have tension, social, economic, and ethnic tension against one another, namely Jews and Gentiles. And so in that context, in Romans chapter 12, he writes in verse 9, speaking to these people who are figuring out how to live together again in a tense social situation. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. <laughs> verse, verse 10 has, has always captivated me. We should... We should be spiritually competitive with one another in the sense that we want to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. That's a great kind of competitiveness that should exist in the local church. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let me just look again at the end of verse 15 where it says, Weep with those who weep before we move on to a few other thoughts about pursuing brotherly love. I think this is a wonderful trait of a gospel-saturated church that people from different parts of society In this sense, in first century Roman church, Jews and Gentiles who had very different experiences, Paul is exhorting them to weep with those who weep. And certainly this filters down into a practical level, that we would know one another well in this church, and when somebody in our church suffers loss, or when they're going through a difficult time, regardless of what the circumstances are, even if part of the reason that they are suffering is because it's a consequence of their own sin, is that we would weep with those who weep. I've sat with people in my office that are going through terrible situations in their life, in their personal life, in their family life. And part of it sometimes, almost all the time, is at least in part because of their own sin or their own failure. That's the way brokenness in our life works. We're always simultaneously suffering the consequences of our own sin and the consequences of sin that happens to us. 
And what the call here is not to divvy up. Oh, well, you know, that was part of your fault. That was partly your fault. You know, you, you had what was coming to you, so you got to deal with it. That's not the admonition here. It's weep with those who weep. But not only on a personal level, on a social level. And I just think about our country and, and how we have grieved what we've seen in the news recently about this man in Minneapolis that was, was, uh, was arrested and then was killed tragically in this arrest, and the young man in Brunswick, Georgia. And no doubt, people will have different opinions, and there are all sorts of things, and it is so difficult to understand what truly happened from hundreds and thousands of miles away. But there should be this, dear ones, hear me on this. There should be this impulse in the Christian, not merely to gather facts, and be able to post something on Facebook that, that lines up with our political persuasion. But the first impulse of the Christian should be just to weep with a brother or sister who is downtrodden or distressed or despairing because of what's going on in the world. Or maybe how they feel threatened because of something that has happened to somebody in their ethnic group or their family or their city or whatever. Dear ones, this is part of where the rubber meets the road in being a compassionate brother or sister with people who are not like us, who have different experiences, that we can weep with those who weep. This is what it means to behave in the children, as in the church of God, that we would be empathetic with one another and that we would have a kind of other-focused life that's, that's really an essential part of being a Christian. Being more concerned with others than you are with yourself. Listen to how Peter describes it. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's the, that's the gospel, really. You, you believed in the gospel. That's what made you right with God. He says now, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I love the way at the end of verse 22 that Peter adds this descriptor of how we're to love one another. He says, earnestly from a pure heart. He doesn't just say love one another in a kind of faux Christianese sort of way. Look, man, a church our size, a church any size, a church more than three people, a church more than two people, you're gonna get on each, we're going to get on each other's nerves. I mean, I've, I'm sure I've gotten on your nerves maybe even in the past 30 minutes. That's just part of living together in a fallen world. But Peter here is saying, don't just love one another in a kind of exterior saying hello in the foyer, sort of American Christian faux, fake smile sort of way. Love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. And sometimes that takes work. That takes the work of thinking about and knowing that that person has been ransomed and loved and that that person has struggles and pains and fears and anxieties and that person's going through something and that person has hopes and dreams and fears and all sorts of things just like we do. And when we see them, we see them through the eyes of the gospel and we know what God has done for us, which humbles us. And so it gives us a better, a softer, more compassionate heart toward one another and we can love one another with a pure heart. A brotherly love is what Peter's calling for. Just like we read from Romans chapter 12. 
And friends, I think when a church does this, when we do this, when, we, when we're just radically bent on loving each other and preferring one another, it, it's, it's just a, it's a, it is a beautiful aroma to the world. This is what makes a church compelling. Not our commonalities culturally, but Christ. That's what makes us compelling. It's nothing really if a group of people who would be together otherwise were together in a local church. What makes a church compelling is people who have no other reason to be together other than Christ. So here's an action step when we gather together. And this is what I like to think of. You know, when I was a kid, we used to have this thing called the Etch-a-Sketch. Do you guys remember that? Some of you that are over the age of 40, I don't know if they still have Etch-a-Sketches. But it was this kind of strange little, little box of sand and it had these two little dials on it, and you could move these little dials, and you could kind of draw things in this little encapsulated little box of sand, I guess. And, and then after you would draw this little thing by manipulating these dials on your little sketch pad, you would shake it, and it would kind of reset it, and you could draw something new. And so let this pandemic, let this time when we're not gathered together, shake us out of our sort of maybe self-centered patterns and let's shake the etch-a-sketch and when we gather back together whether it's june 7th for you or whether it's later on in the summer have your head on a swivel shake the etch-a-sketch of your patterns of fellowship in the local church and look for someone new to meet someone new to engage someone new to greet someone new to serve someone new to prefer someone new to esteem more highly than yourself i'm not saying sign up for some team or be part of some organized ministry i'm saying be a new testament christian who thinks about others more than yourself and if we have a church full of people who are willing to shake the etch-a-sketch and live that way oh friends friends it will be and is and has been for our 15 years of a church a sweet smelling aroma to the world around us all right let me hurry on and finish behavior how we have to behave number three we should practice patience and this church is so patient. Man, we are so, and I'm so thankful for that. But let me, just, let me just encourage us even more along this way. Let me read 1 Timothy 5, verse 14. Paul writes, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's just this beautiful picture in both of these verses of just patience with one another. God's design is for us not to be so wonderful that we never rub one another the wrong way, but that as we bear with one another, as we endure with one another, as we fight to be patient with one another, He uses the collective challenge of life together to produce in us more Christ-likeness, which actually in turn makes us more beautiful and more lovely to Him.
Now, friends, this is going to be particularly tested in the coming weeks. There are going to be people with differing consciences on things like social distancing. You know, there will be people that might be over in that corner of the sanctuary hugging each other. They haven't seen each other. And that might offend somebody. Like, what are you guys doing? That's there might be people with face masks and people without. We're encouraging you to wear masks, to consider people that might have a, 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 you know, health problems or might be more susceptible. But th- we're not forcing it on people. And so there might be differing levels of patience, even with one another. And on a good Sunday, where everything is going well, our patience will be tested with one another in this fallen world. In particular, in these coming days, with children fussing and people having different beliefs about this or that or the other. Friends, our patience will be tested. And this will be a great opportunity for us to actually live in this countercultural way, which is a witness of the gospel and makes us more like Jesus. So do you see how this difficulty that we may face even in this awkward time of gathering together in the coming months in different ways, is actually for our good. It's for our good. God intends it for our good. One of the ways that God does that is by shattering our preconceived notions of everything having to be awesome. I've talked about that a lot. This American addiction to awesomeness and God and his kindness, when he really grows a person, he disabuses them. He frees them from their idolatrous addiction to awesomeness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, put this well in his book called Life Together. It's a classic in Christian literature. Bonhoeffer was a German scholar and professor here in America. Went back to Germany as the Third Reich was rising in power to really support and encourage the underground church in Germany to oppose Hitler. Was actually put in prison for being involved in a plot to actually assassinate Hitler and was hung just weeks before the end of World War II, before Hitler was, was killed, died at the age of 39. And he wrote this in his book, Life Together, about Christian community. I've read this before several years ago. It's a beautiful description of the progress of maturity in a Christian's encounter with community in church. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. He says, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But, listen, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Oh, man, our boy Dietrich nailed it. What a beautiful description of what it means to live in the the reality of Christian community. And how when our idolatrous dreams of it are shattered, 
it actually works for our good. Well, dear ones, I cannot wait to see you. I can't wait to struggle to prioritize church life with you. I can't wait to pursue brotherly love, even imperfectly with you. And I can't wait to practice patience with you and to receive your patience and your love as we gather together again as a local church. I love you, Crosspoint. Can't wait to see you next Sunday, Lord willing. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us live this way together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I thank you for Crosspoint Church, this little local household of God, this little portion of the church of the living God, which in its own unique and imperfect way is being used by you to be a pillar and buttress of the truth in Columbus and in our surrounding area, and thankfully because of your grace all around the world to churches and people that have been impacted by the members in the ministry of this church. Lord, help us as we gather together. Thank you for the graces that you have given us these past 12 weeks. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot yet gather. Lord, give them more patience, more endurance, more steadfastness as they await that day when they can. We know that we, as American Christians, are just barely scratching the surface of difficulty compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. So we're chastened by that. But we ask that you would use this 12 weeks, that we would not waste this pandemic. And that on the other side of this, you would make Crosspoint, that you would make us, that you would make me more like Christ. All for your glory. All for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless, Crosspoint. We'll see you next Sunday. Most of us, many of us, Lord willing, here together at Crosspoint.